Saints, open your Bibles to the book of the Apocalypse. So, um, Revelation chapter 1. So, in the, um, the very first verse here, it simply begins the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angels, by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. He opens up by simply saying the revelation of Jesus Christ. I, I want to make a point here because this is my pet peeve, honestly. Not anyone else's, just mine. It's singular revelation. It's not revelations. Um, it is a singular revelation. The word in the Greek is apocalypse. And so that's why we say turn to the apocalypse. Now, the apocalypse is not what most people in our country think. We look at the apocalypse and we think doom and gloom and disaster and everything falling apart. That's not what um, the, the Lord shows is what the apocalypse is. When you take a look at what God declares is the revelation, what God declares is the apocalypse, I want to take you to just a couple of, of passages so that you can kind of understand what it is that here Scripture declares is the apocalypse, not what you know Hollywood or movies or those things declare is the apocalypse. The first I want you to turn or just jot it down. I'm going to read to you Luke 2, verse 32. And in Luke 2, 32, it says, A light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And so we're here um, as Simeon is prophesying and he's just enraptured in, in with the Lord. And he said, listen, you know, I've seen now your salvation. And what I'm seeing here is this, is, is a light to bring revelation or apocalypse to the, God, to the Gentiles. And so it's not doom and gloom to the Gentiles. It's a greater awareness. It's an opening. And that's what the apocalypse is. The, the, the term apocalypse would be better um, if it was like a disclosure, um, if it was to take off or to reveal. Um, and so it doesn't mean catastrophe. There's another passage, simply jot it down, found in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 16, verse 25, I'm going to just simply read that to you. To him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began. So it talks about here to him who's able to establish you in Romans um, 16, 25. And he says, now this is according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery. So in other words, as God has you know, more and more unveiled who Jesus Christ is, um, what his ministry is. Two other passages to jot down as a note taker. The first is found in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So you see here, it's grace that's brought to you upon the revelation. It's not doom and gloom. So when you think of the term apocalypse, like I said, don't look to Hollywood. Don't look to what the world says it is. Understand that what the term in the Greek means, it's to reveal, it's to um, unveil. And, and that's the key 
as we look to hear what John is beginning to say. One of the passages in, in, in 1 Peter 4, 13, he says, But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering, that when his glory is revealed, in other words, his glory is apocalypse, revealed that you may be glad with exceeding joy. So I threw in that last one just so you can see that it is an unveiling. It is a disclosure. It is a point where it's not disaster. So when I say turn to the apocalypse, you don't have to think, oh my goodness, is there a book? No, that's not what it is. Just because there is going to be the tribulation in the book, that's not the key to the book. That's why I say it's not revelations plural it's the singular revelation of the person the work the ministry of jesus christ and that's what it says right off in the bat the revelation singular of jesus christ now within this revelation i want you to see how john receives it it says the revelation of jesus christ which god gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. So within this message, within this prophecy that God is going to give to John, we see here that God gives this message, all these things which must shortly take place, and he, that is God, sent, and he signified it by his angel to his servant John. So God, what he does is he then gives it to um, the angel. He signifies it to his angel and to his servant John. So he signified it by his angel to his servant John. So God gives it to an angel. The angel then gives it to John. But this term signified it is a unique term. Um, It's found in John chapter 4 verse 48 where they were looking for signs and wonders. And what happens is this, a lot of the, the book of Revelation is going to be signs. It's going to be symbols. And so don't panic, don't um, you know, get all, all frustrated because of what these symbols are. Because the symbols themselves are going to be revealed in other areas of Scripture. And I think that's the key when it comes to looking at this, this area of seeing these symbols. Keep in mind that words change. What a word can mean at one point, it doesn't necessarily you know, mean something else or else that sometimes words don't transcend cultures. They don't transcend um, you know, languages. But symbols do. And biblical symbols are almost always constant. And so symbols are used you know, to convey ideas. They're used to convey Um, beliefs. They're used to help people understand. So when you see symbols, you know, one of the first things that we see in the book of Genesis is what God brings a rainbow after the flood, and it rainbows a promise. So you realize that this, this rainbow, the beauty of, you know, God himself as he sits upon a throne that's almost as a sense as a rainbow, that we see here, it's that symbol of a promise. Um, we're going to see here that, that Jesus is going to be depicted here in the first chapter, but also once we get into the fourth chapter, you're going to see him, what, as a lamb that was slain. Again, you're going to see this symbol, you're going to see this sign. And so what God does is he gives it through sign to the angel who gives it to John. 
So what John is able to see is a language that depicts beyond what simple language can declare. And so as, as we're, we're going to see, these signs and the symbols aren't designed so that we can make them say whatever our culture says or whatever we want them to say. They're going to be revealed in Scripture. And so it's important that when we're looking to the signs, and what we'll do is we'll look to Scripture to simply um, the, you know, look to see what these things are. So back in verse one, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. This is a key verb. This term that must shortly take place, um, the, 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 the term itself where it says it must, must, um, shortly, it means to be quick. It means to make haste. And so what happens is this, that it means that once it begins, it's going to happen in rapid succession. And so these things much, must shortly take place. If you can think of a woman who's pregnant, eventually she begins to have her labor pains. And once the labor pains begin to go faster and faster and faster, you know what? The, the birth is very imminent. And that's what happens here, that he's going to show his servants, things which must shortly or very quickly or very hastily take place. So as we're noting here, the, the largest portion here of the book of Revelation is actually going to be taking place in seven years. This is the consummation of Daniel's 70th week. So when he says, I want to show you these things that are going to rapidly take place, we're going to see here that within this ministry of the the, the tribulational period, that seven-year period that Daniel talks about, it's going to, once you see these signs, it's going to very quickly take place, and seven years is going to fly by, not for these people that are going through it, but, you know, um, we know how quickly that time is going to pass, especially for us who are in heaven with the marriage supper of the Lamb. So he's going to show him all these things that are going to take place in a rapid su succession. And he does so not with a multitude of words, but with a multitude of symbols and a multitude of signs. So this is how he's going to communicate to John. So that John, although he may not be able to fully understand all the words, he can declare the signs. And through the signs, as we look to scripture, that'll give us a clear understanding of what it is that here the father is signifying to his angel and then to his servant, John. Now, in verse 2, it talks about this. He said he's going to, at the end of verse 1, he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. So we're going to see here that um, as this angel now gives it to John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all the things that he saw. Everything that, that John is going to see, he's going to write, he's going to um, declare it, he's going to speak these things. And he says, I've already bore witness to the word of God, to Jesus Christ, and to the word while I was, and to his testimony while I was here on the earth. And after now Christ has been resurrected, now I'm bearing witness to who he is here in heaven. And, and at, at the end times, because he is the eternal one. And so he says now in verse 3, he opens up with, of course, this blessing, and he says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. Understand that that's what this book is. One, it is a, 
it is going to be the revelation of, G- of Jesus Christ. It's going to be declared through um, these, these signs as he signifies it. It's also going to be here words of prophecy. And so it is a prophetical book. In other words, what it's going to do is this. is It is going to um, speak of the future as if it's history. And that's what we learned, of course, when we went through the book of Daniel. We were going through prophecy, but we were reading it because Daniel said these are things that's going to take place. We were reading it as history. And we noted that one day we're going to read Revelation, you know, as if it's history. And so that's what this prophecy is. So he says, blessed is he who reads and those who keep. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and keep those things which are written in it. There's a threefold blessing that comes with this. Now, one thing I do want to make a note, when he does say the word blessed, there are seven blessings that are here in the book of Revelation. For you note takers, let me just jot it down. I'm not going to turn there, but I want to give you at least the understanding of what they are. Revelation 1.3. Chapter 14, verse 13, chapter 16, verse 15, chapter 19, verse 9, chapter 20, verse 6, chapter 22, verse 7, and chapter 22, verse 14. These are the seven blessings that come here through the book of Revelation. Now, as we're going to see in just a moment, that number seven is going to be prominent. When you see or you understand lists of sevens, you're going to realize that what they are is they are a completion. Seven is a biblical number for completion. In other words, like when there's seven days, it's what? It's a complete week. Then you go to the next Sunday, it's now a new beginning. So that's the eighth day. So, But he does say that there's seven blessings now. But here there's a blessing of one, and it's threefold. Those who read it. Now, when you read it, keep in mind, I do believe that it's reading it out loud, not just reading it inside your head. There's something about the book of Revelation that should be read out loud. When you read it um, and those who hear the words, when you read it and it's spoken and you're able to hear the words and those who read and those who hear the words of this prophecy and then keep those things which are written in it. The real blessing doesn't come through simply hearing it and reading it. The real blessing comes when it becomes a part of your life and you're walking it. But that's the the norm with all the things that are there of the Lord. So he gives this blessing here in verse 3. Now, as he does in verse 4, it just simply opens up the beginning of um, the, the writing of this book. So initially you see this introduction of where John was and how he was and, and what was going on. But it now says in verse 4, John to the seven churches who are in Asia. So John here is now declaring this book and he's writing this book and what he's saying is to the seven churches which are in Asia. When we get into chapters 2 and 3, we'll be looking at those seven churches So it's in the province of Asia. We would call that modern-day Turkey. And so as John is writing, he's going to be writing to these seven churches. So John to the seven churches which are in Asia. So God, he he gives this revelation um, 
through these signs from the angel to John, John is now declaring these things. And the first thing that he does after he says, okay, John to the seven churches, he's writing this letter, grace to you and peace. Now I want you to see the Trinity here. There's going to be three places where he says from grace to you and peace. And of course, that incredible blessing that Paul writes in his epistles, grace and peace, those, those two, you know, twin towers of just power with knowing the grace of God and receiving the peace of God. This is grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth. We see here this threefold um, blessing of this grace and peace. The first is grace and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Now, we're going to see here that that term who is and who was and who is to come is going to be spoken both of the Father and it's going to be spoken of the Son as well. What that term means to him who was and who is and who is to come, understand that when you see that term, that just means eternally existing. He was he is, and he is to come. So there's never a point in where he doesn't exist. And so he's eternal in his existing. Now, initially what we see here is when it talks about it in verse 4, grace and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, you're dealing with the Father. Let me give you just one passage to kind of help guide you through this. In the book of Revelation chapter 4, I'm going to read to you verse 8. It simply declares as here John is there, he sees the throne, he sees you know, God upon that throne. And in verse 8, he sees these four living creatures, each having six wings. They're full of eyes all around and within, and they do not rest day and night. And notice what they are saying. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So at this point, they're talking about the Father. This is who they're speaking of. Now, eventually, what we're going to see is once chapter 5 comes on the scene, then in verse 6, he's going to look, and then he's going to see in the midst of the elders, he's going to see there's a lamb that's standing as though it had been slain. So initially here in Revelation 4, it speaks of the Father, and it uses that term, who was and who is and who is to come. In verse 8 of Revelation 1, you see the same thing where now Jesus is speaking. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, he who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So Jesus puts himself on the same plane as God. He simply declares that I am eternal. So when you're looking at that, realize that term means eternal existing. And so initially now in verse 4, grace to you and peace from him, this would be the Father who is eternal, from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits. Now there are going to be multiple places where this term seven spirits is used. However, in this place where you're looking at the seven spirits, 
we're going to see that there are other times where it's used. Let me just actually just share those with you. In Revelation 3 verse 1, it says, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. We also see there in Revelation chapter 4 verse 5, it says, And from the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And so, you know, Revelation 5, verse 6, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne, the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been saying, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, and sent out into all the earth. So what does it mean, the seven spirits here in this point? There are two possibilities that I would see in Scripture. That one, we're going to see how these, these seven spirits are going to be dealing with the churches. But there's another aspect that when you're looking at here, this blessing, this grace and peace from the eternal father and from the seven spirits. There's a passage found in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. Let me read it to you, but it shows the sevenfold um aspect of the spirit of the Lord. It says in verse two, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. So you see the spirit of the Lord. Then it says the spirit of wisdom, which is two, and understanding, which is three, the spirit of counsel, which is four, and might, which is five, the spirit of knowledge, which is six, and the fear of the Lord, which is seven. So you have this sevenfold demonstration of the Spirit and his ministries. And so in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, you see that sevenfold ministry of the Spirit. There's one other possibility found in Luke chapter um, 2. Hold on a second. Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and 19. In Luke 4, 18 and 19, let me read again almost a sevenfold understanding where Jesus is saying is this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Again, that spirit of the Lord being one. Because he has, number two, anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Number three, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Four, to proclaim the liberty to the captives. Five, to recover the sight of the blind. Six, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And seven, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. So you see that in these two instances, you notice the spirit and the sevenfold ministry of the spirit. So when you see here in verse four, grace and peace from him, the eternal father, and from the seven spirits, I would say that you're looking at the Holy Spirit and the sevenfold ministry of the Spirit. And so there's two places, once in the Old Testament, once in the New Testament, that that sevenfold ministry of the Spirit is there. And that's where I would say that you're looking here at the Trinity. First, from the Eternal Father, the seven spirits who are before his throne. And then he says in verse 5, from Jesus Christ. So you're looking at here with this blessing of this grace and peace coming from the Father, the eternal, the eternal Father, the, the, the Spirit, the sevenfold ministry, and from Jesus Christ. Now, when Jesus Christ is mentioned, 
it shows a threefold revelation of him as well. A one-fold revelation of the Father being eternal, seven-fold representation of the Spirit being complete, and the threefold representation of Jesus Christ being perfection. So one is, you know, basically like a, a, um, a oneness, a completeness in the self. Two is, is, or when you're looking at three, it's perfection, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, numerically there, scripturally, and then seven being completion. But for Christ in verse 5, it shows something different. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, and it says this, the, Jesus Christ, one, the faithful witness, two, the firstborn from the dead, and three, the ruler over the kings of the earth. And then you have this beautiful doxology to him who loved us and washed us from his sins with his own blood, made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So after this threefold revelation of Christ, it has this threefold blessing with this doxology declaring his greatness. Now what's interesting about here, this threefold revelation, it first talks about that he's a faithful witness. That as this faithful witness, you could simply jot it down that he is the truth teller. That's what a faithful witness is, that what he declares is true, that he's the one who speaks truth. And so we see here that as he speaks things, everything that he reveals is true. And so Jesus Christ, what he does is when you look to him and you, you seek him, he reveals things as they really are. And so often we have a tendency of denying who we are and how we are and what we do. But Jesus Christ truly reveals things as they really are. He reveals my heart as it really is. He reveals my mind as it really is. He reveals my life and my actions as they really are. So when you're looking at truth, and I think it's important to realize this where Jesus says, I am the truth, that truth is not something that we can invent. Truth is not something that we can make. Truth is only something that we can discover. And once you get that, once you understand that, you're going to reveal that, you know, when, oh, I, I've now, you know, learned something. It's because what? Christ. Christ is that faithful witness. He is the truth teller. He is truth incarnate. Not only is he the truth teller, but we also see that here he's the firstborn from the dead. He is the life giver. He's the truth teller. He's the life giver. Now keep in mind that what we're seeing here is he's that life giver, that he is the first to rise in a sense to eternity. In the scripture, we're going to see that he's the firstborn from the dead. He is the supreme one, not the very first person who's risen from the dead. But although keep in mind that is going to be in a sense of truth. When other people have died and have come back from the dead in the scriptures, what they have done is this. They've always gone back to their old life. They died. They came back to life through either a prophet or the Lord, and then they went back to their own life. When Jesus rose from the dead, he was in a glorified body, brand new life, brand new ministry. So in that sense, he is the first to do it to this degree. He's the first to come to that eternal, um, where he now is, is risen, new body, new ministry, everything begins to change. 
And so I think it's important to realize that you do have this where he's the firstborn from the dead, first in supremacy, um, and also the first who actually rise to the point of being eternal, where he doesn't go back to his old life, but he has a brand new life, brand new body, where he can appear and disappear at will. And, and so they can kind of recognize him, but then they still don't recognize him. So he is one, the faithful witness. He's the truth teller. He's the, the life giver as he's the firstborn from the dead. And also we see the last thing is he's the law giver. Let me share what it says. He says he is the faithful witness. Whatever he says, speaks is true. He's the firstborn from the dead, where now that he has eternal life to this degree, he gives it to us. And then he's the ruler over the kings of the earth. He is the supreme ruler. And I love this aspect because what we see here is that here, all these kings... He's the ruler over the kings of the earth. It's his laws that they should be declaring. The kings aren't supposed to be making their own laws. They're not supposed to be saying, this is what I want to do, and this is how I want to do it. The kings of the earth, he is, and you have to understand this, the ruler over the kings. He sets the laws for the kings. And so every nation that has ever been Every ruler of every nation that has ever been, they have a ruler over them. It's Jesus Christ. And what they need to be seeking is what are his rules? What are his laws? What, are, what is he speaking? And so we see here this beautiful portion of this threefold revelation to whom he is. He's his faithful witness. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the ruler of the kings. He's the truth teller, the life giver and the, um, the, the supreme ruler, the lawmaker. And now it begins this beautiful doxology. And again, a threefold declaration of his greatness. Notice what it says in this doc, doc, doxology. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and he's made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So you see this beautiful act of worship, this point of praise to this one who is the faithful witness and the firstborn of the dead and the ruler over the kings. He says now to him who loved us, the first, he washed us from our sins with his own blood, the second, and he's made us kings and priests to his God and Father. The first thing we see is he simply loves us. And I think there's no greater thing that we should ever declare to the world is this. God loves you. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. There's a point when people understand the love of God. Now, to be honest with you, before I became a Christian, there were many Christians who came and they did not declare a God of love. They simply declared a God who was so angry with me. Not a God who, who loved me and was brokenhearted because I was lost. They just declared a God that was angry. And I love the first thing that he does when he says, yeah, he's this faithful witness. He's the, the, the firstborn of the dead. He's the ruler over the kings. All this might and authority. And what he does is this. He loves us. He just loves us. 
And so we see this incredible love that he has for us that takes us into the second one where he now washes us from our sins in his own blood. He loves us and then he cleanses us. He, he goes and he makes us new. He washes us. And so within this, he begins to, with his blood, wash us so that all of our skins that were, sins that were scarlet now becomes white as snow. So he washes us from our sins in his own blood. So again, we see here that it's that blood that makes atonement for the souls. And, and at this point, he loves us, he washes us. And then after we're washed, then notice what happens and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. After he goes and he sets his love upon us, he then washes us from our sins with his blood, and then he makes us a kingdom of priests, of kings and priests. We're to be, in a sense, these, these rulers, and then he, you know, that he's going to use us for his glory. He's going to use us for his kingdom. So he sees us who are separated. He sets his love upon us. He then gets us and cleanses us. And then he says, now I'm going to use you. Now I'm going to use you as this kingdom. I'm going to make you this kingdom of kings and priests. And he's going to do this, what? Well, to his God and Father. Now to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This beautiful prayer of just glorifying the Son and who he is as he's revealed. So we see that initial introduction in the first three verses. We see here that beginning of this letter as he, John writes to the seven churches, the grace and peace from the Trinity, the eternal Father, the seven spirits, from Christ with that threefold revelation. Then as he you know, recognizes that threefold revelation, he gives this beautiful threefold doxology to his glory. And now he says this, after he gives this beautiful, beautiful praise he now says behold he is coming now i'll tell you what that verse is going to bring two reactions to people one when i say behold he is coming there are some people who are going to just raise their hands and say, hallelujah come quickly lord jesus there are others that wait a second i gotta get some things right here behold he is coming and I think it's important that, that you realize what? He is coming. And so here's, a, here's the deal. That if you have been living a life not anticipating his coming, I would, I would challenge you this. Tonight, tonight, pray. And, and, and if you're not anticipating his coming, pray and change your life so that when he comes, whenever he comes, that you will not be disappointed. So that when he comes, and I just think it's just important, behold, he is coming. He's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. Now, what's interesting is that he's going to come back, and even those who pierced him are going to see him. Now, that's a reference from an Old Testament book, the book of Zechariah. Let me read it to you, Zechariah chapter 13, verse 6, just so that you can grasp what this prophecy is. 
he says in Zechariah 13, verse 6, and one will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? And then he will answer, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. They're going to come and they're going to recognize, where'd you get those wounds? He says, well, I got them in the house of my friends. And so when he says, listen, he's coming in the clouds and every eye will see him. We're going to see that the, even they who pierced him, they're going to say, where'd you get these wounds? Because I got him in the house of my friends. I love it that he still calls Israel. You're my friends. This whole book, what we're going to see here, as we've talked about it earlier, is the fulfillment of Daniel's 70th week. It is basically to bring Israel back into a right relationship with him as a nation. And so where he says, even those who pierced him. And then he says this at the end of verse 7. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so, amen. He talks about all the tribes of the earth are going to mourn. And there's a reason that they will. In the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, let me read it to you. It declares this, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, those in heaven and those on the earth, and those under the earth, and that at and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we realize that every knee is going to bow. Not just those who have confessed him as Lord and Savior here. But every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so when he is coming, he says, behold, he's coming in the clouds. And every eye will see him. Now he points to those who are of Israel, even though even they who pierced him, and then the rest of all the Gentiles and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. So he talks about all those of the, the rest of the world that were in rebellion against him. They will bow the knee. They will confess that he is Lord. And so we see here this beautiful term in verse 7, that he is coming. Now, Jesus speaks this truth in verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. As Jesus begins to say that, he calls himself the Alpha and the Omega. In the Greek alphabet, Alpha is the first, Omega is the last. He says on the beginning and the end. It's just another way of saying that. He says the same thing at the very end of the book in Revelation 21.6, where he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. So he's the beginning of the alphabet. He's the end of the alphabet. In other words, he's the beginning of the word. He's the end of the word. In other words, it's just his word. He's the beginning of everything. So when you look to the word, you look to the truth, that's who he is. So he says, I am the alpha and the omega. And then he says, the beginning and the end. In other words, if you didn't know the Greek language, let me help you using the symbolism, the beginning and the end of all letters, the beginning and the end of all words. So, and then he says, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, Jesus Christ speaking here says, I am eternal, I am the Almighty, the same as what they were noting there in Revelation chapter 4, where they were, you know, declaring and worshiping and giving God glory. 
where they made that statement. Let me read it to you one more time at the end of verse 8. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So within this, we begin to see that here he says, I am the first, I am the last, I am the one who is and who was and who is to come. Two passages I want to give you at this point, both found in the book of Isaiah. The first is found in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6 and 7. Let me read it to you. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. So the Father and the Son speaking. And he says this, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. So he says, okay, me and my son, singularly, I am. And I love the heart of that because he's showing here the reality of the aspect of the, the Trinity as he and the son are one. And he says, I am the first, I am the last. Besides me, there is no God who can proclaim as I do. And he goes on to declare, yes, I will tell you the end from the beginning. I will set all these things up. Now, one other passage in Isaiah 48, verse 12 he makes this statement, listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel my called. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. So he's using that term, of course, that he does with Moses, the I am. And so where he is the eternal. So as we're looking to this, we see that the Father is eternal, there in verse 4. Jesus Christ says he is eternal, here in verse 8, as he reveals himself. Now in verse 9, John continues to write after this greeting, this blessing, this, this revelation that he has where he gives glory to God after he reveals the three. He says in verse 9, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos. So we see here that he's now on this island that is called Patmos. Now that island um, of Patmos is going to be on the um, western side of the, the churches. It's sort of like southwest from where those churches are there in Asia. So he's on this island outside of that. Um, commentators and theologians have it that Rome, after they tried to kill him, didn't work out very well. They had him boiled in oil, and his skin just became baby soft. And so they said, well, apparently boiling in oil doesn't work with you. So they exiled him to the island of Patmos, which was like a mining colony that was there. And so here we see John, and he makes this statement. He's a companion in the tribulation, number one. I'm a companion in the kingdom, number two, and I'm a companion in the patience of Jesus Christ. So he says, I'm with you in the trials. I'm with you in this kingdom. Make no mistake that God is still the one who's in control and be patient. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a companion in these three things as we're what we're waiting for. For us, it's what we're waiting, waiting for, you know, Revelation 19 and 20. That's what we're waiting for. We're waiting for him to come. We're waiting for him to set up his kingdom. Now, John says these things are going to happen quickly. But during this tribulation, while the Lord is beginning to now finally establish his kingdom, 
as he, you know, is going to destroy the kingdoms of the world that have rejected him, and of course the Antichrist. As he does this, he says, now I'm a, I'm a companion there in the tribulation, in this kingdom, and in the patience. What he's saying is this, I'm a companion with you in your tribulation. We're a companion together in the kingdom. Be a companion with me in patience. And that's that thought that he comes in, and I love the heart of it. He says, I'm with you in the tribulation. You have to be with me in the patience because we're all in this kingdom together. And I love the heart of that because as he does so, he says, I was on this island called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. He was there because he declared the Christ. He spoke to him. And so we see here that here he's on this island. And now he declares in verse 10, I was on the spirit in the Lord's day. Now, when he says, I was in the spirit of the Lord's day, there are two aspects for it. One, we could say that, that either he was, you know, in a sense, just drawn into this vision, which is a possibility, or two, he was just an incredible aspect of worship. Now, I'll be honest with you, when you come to that place of, of just praying or worshiping or seeking God, and you're at that place of surrender, you begin to experience almost this spiritual euphoria. And there's been a few times where, you know, I've, I've, I've prayed and, and I've just been in a place of seeking the Lord. And all of a sudden, just this incredible experience of his presence comes upon me. And, and it's happened less than a handful of times. And the first time that it happened, I was so excited. I was like Peter saying, oh, Lord, it's so good to be here. And, and as soon as I did so, it was gone. It was just, it was gone. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I just can't say anything the next time that happens. And you just try to just bask in it for as long as God is there. But he says he was in the spirit. But he says he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now, what does it mean the Lord's day? Um, most commentators would say, and I would agree with them, the Lord's day would be what? It would be Sunday. He was there on where the church would gather there to glorify and worship Jesus Christ. The church did not meet on the Sabbath. They did not meet on where the Jews met on the seventh day. They would meet on the day that the Lord rose on the first day of the week. And that's why Paul said, on the first day of the week, here's where you do in your ministries. So he was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as a trumpet. Now he hears this voice, and this voice is just a blaring voice. It captures his attention, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So he mentions now these seven churches by name. Of course, he's going to mention them again in Revelation 2 and 3. We'll be getting to that next week. And so he says, okay, I am this first and the last. I am um, the eternal one. So what you see now, write it in the book. So I want you to understand that he does make a statement, what you see, write it. Write down these symbols, write down these signs, write down what it is so that as the generations come and the cultures come, these symbols and the signs will not change. Why? Because they're connected to the Word of God. They're connected to the Old Testament, and we understand they're also connected to the New. 
as these symbols and signs are connected to Scripture, you can say what? They're true. Now, if you start looking at these symbols and signs and try to make them spiritual, what you want them to be, or try to make them and, and connect them to what the world has it, then you're going to find yourself in error, missing the mark on what God wants you to receive here from this revelation of Jesus Christ. All of these things, all of the signs, all of the symbols, we're going to come to the same conclusion that the author of Hebrews, in the volume of the book, it is written of me. It's written of Jesus Christ to do your will, O God. This is what he's seeing. Everything here as he goes through, he says, what you see right in a book. It's important to realize that he's going to be writing down these symbols. He's also going to be writing down, you know, some of what he would hear and stuff. But the key being is all these symbols of the events that are going to be taking place. So he said, what you see right in the book, send it to the seven churches. Now, verse 12, he turns to see the voice that spoke. As he turns to see that voice, which was as loud as a trumpet, the voice that was as a trumpet, when he turns to see, he says, having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. So he sees here seven golden lampstands. Now, I want to jump ahead to verse 20, just so you don't get confused here. It says here in Revelation 1.20, the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. So when he turns and he sees, he saw the one and he saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, like one, one like the Son of Man. He sees, in a sense, the, the glory of the churches. Now, of course, number seven being the completion of the church. You would also see that where Jesus said to, to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? The church is the body of Christ. And so he turns, he sees these the seven lampstands. He sees the the depiction of these seven churches. But in the midst of the churches, he sees one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about the chest with a band of gold. Now, when you see this, this cloth that's down to his feet, remember when Joseph had the coat of many colors or he had the coat of long sleeves? It was a coat that wasn't designed for working. You know as well as I do that if you um, want to work, you don't work in a bathrobe. Why? Because you can't bend down, you can't kneel, you, you need to be able to move, you need to be able to be free. That's why those people who were working in that society would have a, uh, um, their garment would be cut off right around the knees so they could bend, they wouldn't get tripped up on it. But here, it shows him as authority. The same way as Joseph had that coat of long sleeves, he sees this garment down to his feet. And again, showing authority. And he's girded about the chest with a golden band. Speaking of his deity, he has this golden belt that's there. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, his eyes like a flame of fire. So when you see the white hair, in a sense... I want you to understand that it's, it's speaking of the wisdom, it's speaking of the, the age, it's speaking of the one who would be that counselor, that father-type figure. So he sees the, the hair 
was white like wool, as white as snow. In the same way as our sins, they'll also be as white as snow. Now his eyes like the flame of fire. In other words, that, that searching, beaming eye that's there where you know he's going to see right through you. We see here these aspects as he looks. He sees that long robe. He sees the golden band of his deity, the hair of wisdom, the eyes that are now, in a sense, blazing with fire. His feet now find brass as if refined in a furnace. His voice is the sound of many waters. So he's almost, you know, in a sense, almost reflecting on, remember when he saw the Lord in his transfiguration? Same type of thing. He sees the glory, the very glory of who this one is. Now, each thing that he sees is one, it's going to be a representation of who Christ is, the ministry of Christ. Now, this isn't just how Christ is going to be depicted. As he sees him in all these ways, I want to take you to one more place just so you can kind of grasp um, what it is that we're looking at as well. Remember now in Revelation 5 verse 6, we've already quoted it twice, but it says this, that in, he looked in the midst of the throne, the four living creatures in the midst of the elders to the lamb as though it had been slain. So you see him in his glory, but you also see him what? You also see him as a lamb. So when he sees him here, this is that initial reaction to know who this is, who is going to declare this to you. And so when he says, I want you to write these things in a book, as he reveals himself as God Almighty, the one who is, you know, um, in authority, the one who's in his deity, the one who's in his wisdom, the one who is, you know, where, where you, you see him as omniscient, um, his, his feet, you see the glory of the works and the walk that he is, and then his voice now as the voice of many waters, the, the booming, thundering voice, um, almost as if you're there by Niagara Falls, that kind of a rushing, the roaring. Now he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the shining, the sun shining in his strength. So as he comes now, he has in his hand the seven stars. Now remember what we read in verse 20. He said this, The mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, as he sees these, there are two aspects that I believe that both of them are true. Some want to only lean towards one side or the other, but I would kind of disagree and say that it could be either or, or it could be both. When he sees the angels, and this is what it says here, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. When we were in Daniel, we did recognize that there was uh, demonic entities and they were over certain places. We also recognize that because he talked about, you know, the, the, the prince of Persia withstood me. As, as Gabriel was going through. But he says, but Michael, Michael the archangel. And we all also noted that Michael the archangel, he had a place too, where his place was over the nation of Israel. And I do believe that in the same way as you have the, the, the spiritual having different rankings and different locales in which they are in, 
there's also that which I do believe the angels. And I believe that there is an angel of the church of Calvary Chapel, Milwaukee. I can't wait to meet him when I get to heaven. There's an angel watching over us, an angel that's ministering to us, an angel that's preparing us. And so I do believe that, one, it is an actual angel. And the term um, angel can also mean messenger. So it could mean simply that the pastor that's there, the one who's giving the message. And so I do believe that in a sense both are true, that here as you see, as he sees the Lord in his right hand, in his strength, he's holding up these churches, the leadership within the churches in verse 16. And also I do believe that you're, he's, he's there with the authority of the angels as well. So in verse 16, he had in his right hand the seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Keep in mind that the, the, the holding of the church is in his hand. The speaking of the word comes through his mouth. And understand that when the word of God is read, the word of God is declared, you're not receiving it as a word of man, but as it truly is a word from the Lord. And I think this is the key to where here Jesus is saying, when you hear these words, the words are mine. Out of his mouth goes this sharp, two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the shining of the sun in his strength. Again, like that transfiguration. Verse 17, I love his reaction. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. <laughs> you see the Lord in this way? You're just humbled. There's no one who can see the Lord in his goodness and his glory like this and stand and say, wow. It's a good thing that you have me. You see the Lord in this way, in the same way as Isaiah, before he saw the Lord high and lifted up, there was woe to all, to the nation Israel and to the surrounding areas. But when he saw the Lord, there was only one woe that was left. Woe is me, for I am undone. And this is what happens when you see it. So what he does, he falls down as he's dead. Whether he's fainted or just laid out, He's overwhelmed. And I love what the Lord responds to him. He laid his right hand on me. That right hand in which was the seven stars. He places his hand on him and he says these four words. Do not be afraid. I love the Lord in his glory. He's like, you don't have to be afraid. I'm the first and I'm the last. He's, he's, he's saying, listen, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. When he says you don't have to be afraid, notice he doesn't just say that I was and I am and I will be. He doesn't use that term. He doesn't use that term as his you know, eternity, that I am he who is and, and who was and who is to come. He doesn't use that term. He changes it now. It says, I am he who lives presently, eternally. I was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. He says, you don't have to be afraid. Why? Because I died for you. I died in your place. I died. The work is done. I'm alive forevermore. You're at peace with me. And he says, and I have the keys of Hades and death. Now, keep in mind, this term throws a lot of people, you know, for a loop. When he talks about, I have the keys of Hades and I have the keys of death. The simplest understanding is this, that he's talking of two things. He's talking about one, um, the physical death and the spiritual death. 
He's saying, I, I have the keys over Hades, which is that physical place, and of death, which is that spiritual death. So he says, I have the keys. I am victorious over your physical death and your spiritual death. I have both of those. I'm the one who has the keys. I'm the one that has authority. And in verse 19, he says, now write these things which you have seen. Again, notice, not what you hear, what you see. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. This here is a divine, literally, um, area where you can understand the, the fullness of the book of Revelation. As we see here, there's a divine outline. And within this outline, what here the Lord says, there's three things that you're going to note. The first thing is, write the things which you have seen. In other words, chapter 1. Write the things that were there in the past, the things that have just happened. Write the things that you have seen. And then he says, and write the things that are. As he's going to go in chapters 2 and 3 and write to the churches, that are going, that's going to be the next thing, the things that you've seen, chapter 1, the past, the things that are, the present, the letters to the seven churches, and the things which will take place after this. In other words, the rest of the book the future. So he says, this here is the outline of the book. Now, there are very few books in the scriptures that actually come with a divine outline. And here he says, there's only three things that you need to do. Write what you just saw. Write the things that are, as I'm going to write to the churches, then write the things that you're going to see here afterwards, these things that will be happening in the future. So verse 19, key to understanding the book of Revelation, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. Verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars of the seven angels of the churches, and the seven lampstands, which you saw are the seven churches. He said this, you have to understand that I am the Lord of the church completely. I am God of the church. And I think that when you come to a conclusion, yes, Lord, you are God of your church. You are God of this church. I will give you one last thing to close, to ponder of, and that is back in verse 7. He says, behold, I am coming. The, the Lord of this church is going to come. The Lord of you and me is going to come. He's going to come. When he says, behold, he is coming, what he means is this. He is coming. Not like he might come. No, he's going to come. Live a life in anticipation of the glory of his coming. Amen? Father, we do thank you for this word. We thank you, Lord, that... Um, Lord, there's so much here, and, and there, there's so much that we could even, you know, spend the next three, four hours going through it, but we're thankful, Lord, that what you've revealed is, is just you and your glory and your beauty, and there's, there's a, a beauty, Lord, in just getting the, the context a little quicker, not stopping at verse one and stopping at verse two and stopping at verse three, but seeing this as a whole, and we're so grateful that you've shown us here the things that, that John needed to write, the things that he had seen. And as we see you, Jesus, we see you in your glory. We are so blessed that in this one chapter, you reveal so much about yourself, 
the aspect of who you are, that, Lord, you are that beautiful truth teller. You are the life giver. You are the, 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 the law giver. That's who you are. And we see you. You're part of this beautiful trinity of the eternal Father and the seven spirits. But you have a word for us. And we want to be those that as we recognize your authority that you've spoken here, that you revealed yourself as this awesome, almighty God, that we would be those who, when we see you in this way, that we would be humbled. We would be humbled when we come before you, knowing that you are God Almighty. And so, Father, continue now to keep this aspect of you in our hearts as we go through this book. We ask it in Jesus' name and all the saints of God said, Amen.